I think it's always that tussle that goes on between equity and debt. And probably, you know, for them, it's very important to come up with the right balance of equity and debt when they're looking at fundraising. Enforcement of contracts, that is something where uh, there has been an improvement. We are seeing uh, that the Indian judicial system is improving. They're reacting faster, they're giving away remedies. So, yes, it's uh, definitely become better in the last 10 years. I feel that more than the post-factor remedies, it's important to put in uh, checks and balances and processes in place so that these instances can be avoided. And for that, is it, it is absolutely important to have, you know, internal uh, teams, internal control teams, internal audit teams within the companies. Welcome back to Understanding VC. I'm your host, Rahul. Understanding VC is a perpetual MBA on a single subject, venture capital. Today, I'll be having an in-depth conversation on how fundraising negotiations in India are constantly evolving in response to various economic, regulatory, and technology trends with Mehek Khanna. Mehek is a partner at Ketan & Ketan, where she leads the corporate and commercial practice, providing legal advice and solutions to clients across various sectors and geographies. Now, let's talk to her. Hi, Mehek. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Rahul. It's a pleasure to be here and having this conversation with you. Looking forward to having a great discussion. Yeah. So I, I was having uh, a conversation with a VC here who's looking to invest uh, in a startup in India. And I think they were looking to invest in a convertible no instrument. And uh, he was telling me that it's apparently illegal to do that for a startup. Yeah, is that true? So the startups are allowed to issue convertible notes. In fact, uh, convertible notes as a concept is very much a part of uh, the Indian Companies Act 2013. And a convertible note essentially is an instrument that evidences receipt of money initially as a debt, which is either repayable at the option of the holder or later on it gets converted into a certain number of equity shares that the startup company has specified. So this is the context in which convertible notes are issued. And of course, there are certain other... Uh, compliances that need to be done and those are mentioned in the law and specifically the rules made under the Companies Act. So yeah, there is this sort of a framework that exists and it's no longer illegal for certain types of startups uh, to raise uh, money through convertible notes. Yeah, uh, but is there a, a specific condition where this is not possible or like so this is possible for startups, the way they are defined. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, this is essentially for certain companies that have been in the business for, uh, I think, minimum of 10 years. And uh, these are the companies that, of course, need to comply with certain requirements when, you know, these convertible notes are being issued. And those requirements in terms of the terms and conditions, how it needs to be executed, uh, what are the meetings that need to be held, what are the board approval procedures, what are the shareholder approval procedures, what are the other filing procedures with the registrar of companies. I mean, there are rules that prescribe for all of that, that these companies need to comply with. So there is this uh, whole uh, setup and process around issuance of these convertible notes. You said company needs to be in business for 10 years? Yes. I mean, not exceeding 10 years. Oh, no, yeah, so period of ex not exceeding 10 years. Yes, from the date of incorporation. 
so that is when a company is treated to be a startup under the indian laws and of course you know the annual uh, turnover of such an entity for uh, the preceding financial year since incorporation should not exceed 100 crores inr uh, the business model of course um, has to be towards development or improvement of a product or service it should have scalable business and uh, this entity should not have been formed by splitting up or um, reconstructing an, an existing business so these are essentially the few requirements so for uh, a company to qualify as a startup under the indian context yeah the the general outlook of a lot of investors when it comes to investing in india is that it's difficult uh, uh, there are a lot of regulations plus it's it's very difficult to take out money and uh, the regulations keep changing things like that right like but over the years at least if you look at the last 15 years has things improved in your opinion see i think very honestly the answer is yes and no on some fronts things have improved as far as the indian regulatory context is concerned that has made it probably a little simpler for the founders to conduct their businesses so there is some part of the ease of doing business story yeah. in india that has worked in the context to for setting up of the company getting the initial uh, licenses pant and getting the initial labor approvals getting the ground running so there has been some improvement on that front but if you look at the fundraise aspect if you look at the foreign direct investment laws the foreign exchange laws in terms of the obligations especially on the money that is coming out of india if you look at the valuation requirements if you look at the tax requirements if you look at the recent addition of angel tax in india all of that has certainly not made things easier for the investors and you know then of course consequently not made it easier uh, for uh, the founders as well in terms of the fundraise so i think there are a lot of issues so uh, where uh, the indian uh, government authorities would need to relook in terms of how they can smoothen this particular process um and how they can uncomplicate some of the regulations and make it easier especially in terms of the foreign fundraise with the indian founders yeah and uh, could you explain uh, angel tax because angel investing has also become a thing in the last 15 years on top of this whole startup uh, thing right um, yeah I mean, angel investments, I think, have become a very big part of uh, the Indian startup uh, ecosystem. That's probably, I think, one of uh, the most important and one of the initial routes for funding that the founders resort to. And also, I think, in terms of the Indian setup with the networking and with the connections and with the friends and family support, it's also not very difficult to generate angel funding. So I think that also plays a part. in uh, the growth of uh, angel funding and the growth of angel networks in india that uh, sort of support uh, startups and startup founders so i think all of these factors combined have uh, resulted in angel funding being an integral part of uh, the startup ecosystem but again angel tax what is that and then uh, that's not really helpful to make angel investing any easier right Yeah, I mean, see, of course, uh, there are a lot of deliberations that are taking place on the recent angel tax, and um, 
Why just the angel tax? I think uh, in the startup hemisphere in India, the way taxation is proceeding, even if you look at the 28% uh, gaming GST tax that the Indian uh, government has imposed on uh, gaming startups, with all of these uh, recent changes and additions, I think this is, of course, making it even more difficult for the founders and, of course, the investors to be able to navigate this particular space because any amount of tax which is levied, it is uh, eventually going to be adjusted through the valuation and the sale considerations. We know that, you know, investors, of course, are uh, not going to entirely um, bear the brunt of it and uh, it, it is something that is going to come up within the negotiations as well. And uh, somewhere the valuations uh, are going to be impacted. And of course, the entire startup community as a whole would bear the brunt of it. I mean, of course, it's definitely not a good uh, story in terms of the startup sector to have all of these issues, which I think the startups have raised with the government authorities as well. And they are discussing. And yeah, so probably, you know, this is an area where I think uh, a lot of uh, work is going to be required in terms of the startup founders working with the governments um, on the consultation front to see what can be done uh, to sort of, you know, deal with uh, these recent tax issues. It's the complete opposite in a lot of countries. Like in the UK, I think a lot of people make angel investment because uh, yeah, it helps them with taxes. So I think... Everybody invests, not really for financial returns, but for tax benefits. <laughs> but the, there might be second order consequences for that in the sense like a lot of people who are not really professional comes in and invest and creates another set of issues. But still, that is more helpful than taxing, especially the sort of investment that can make a big difference. And it's these experiments that turn into large corporations and very few of them turn into those, right? Well, yeah, why is that? Like, why are we not moving in that direction? See, I think very honestly, um, considering we're talking about uh, GST and angel tax, I mean, if you look at the concept of angel tax, I mean, it it essentially says that uh, the government will want to tax the excess consideration that are received by the unlisted companies with respect to the shares that are issued by them over and above the fair market value. So I think where they are coming from is that from a government standpoint, they probably want a piece of that pie. And uh, if there is any valuation that goes above the fair market value, then that is where the tax comes. And even if you look at the um, GST gaming tax, again, the concept is to have uh, probably, you know, a pie of that gaming share because it is a high valuation, high revenue uh, based sector. So I think, you know, being a developing country, uh, looking at the economic considerations, uh, the government, of course, is um, making its tax policy accordingly. But at some stage for uh, India to sort of, you know, shift its gears and convert its journey from developing to develop, these issues would also need to be taken care of. And it is very important to give comfort to businesses, to companies that they can run their businesses without, you know, the tax terrorism and tax excesses being there. And I think that is something that probably as uh, a country, uh, you know, one would need to look into at a policy level.
Yeah. And uh, regulatory changes uh, also in the fintech uh, is not really helpful, right? Yeah. See, I think uh, so tech and fintech again, it, it's such a growing field in India. So if you look at the perspective of the regulators, let's pick up fintech specifically. Yeah. And the regulator, which is the Reserve Bank of India. So for the Reserve Bank of India, it is very important for them to regulate the sector from a customer standpoint to protect the interest of the customers and hence with the you know progressive technology whatever issues have come up that have impacted the customers whether that's on the KYC front or you know on the frauds that have been committed onto the customers or where their money has been taken you know the customer money has been embezzled so on all, all of those fronts and more the RBI is extremely keen to play it safe and that is where they are tightening the noose on the regulations that is where we are seeing the regulations on um, the data front, on the outsourcing front, on um, you know the lending apps front, on the payment aggregator fund. We are seeing the regulations being tightened. So there is a reason why they are doing that, yeah. and while that reason is absolutely justified because it's ultimately the regulator playing catch up with the instances that are happening with the advent of technology to protect the customer interest. I think somewhere it's also important to balance it with the business interest. Similarly, if you look at the recent data protection regulation that has been, you know, um, notified for implementation in India, uh, the DPDPA, it is a huge landmark for a country like India to recognize protection of personal data as a significant right and to implement it on the lines of um, GDPR. And it's a significant step. I think businesses and, uh, you know, government people, everyone is appreciating the initiative and the efforts that the government has put in to get this uh, law passed. But having said that, at some point in time, the government wouldn't have to look into the business cost implications of implementing this law, especially at the startup level. And while they have mentioned in the law itself that they may consider giving exemptions especially to startups they've not really um sort of come up with a policy on what those exemptions would be whether they'll give it to certain sectors at the startup level or not or what is going to be the criteria so it's probably a wait and watch game at this point in time and one would really need to see what comes out of it but yes at some point in time it is going to be a huge huge cost implication onto the startups and probably there needs to be you know some sort of a balance in maintaining the legal compliances and enforcing the privacy rights of individuals versus you know sort of imposing additional compliance cost on startups um, that they might not be able to take all these things is very challenging for both parties for investors and founders in so in the us angelist has played a big role in terms of like making a lot of these things easier, right? In terms of infrastructure. So there's AngelList in India as well. And there's also Let's Venture, if I'm not wrong. Have they been able to make things easier? Like those, those crowd make platforms connecting investors uh, and founders, especially at early stage? Not really. I think these crowdfunding platforms in terms of the Indian context are not very up and running. 
also i think in terms of the indian uh, startup founders i think for them it's more important to sort of navigate these issues and come up with a realistic valuation and come up with certain terms when giving their proposal to the investors so that you know they are able to close it at uh, a realistic expectation of the investors and by that i mean that when the founders know that there is an increased compliance cost right now they know that no investor is going to invest without doing a detailed due diligence they also know that there may be certain tax implications arising out of the transactions and they should you know accordingly then tweak their proposal and come up with something that is more palatable for the investors for this space i think that is something they are doing at their end and they should continue doing because it's very important for you know for the founders to have a realistic approach and to also correct their expectations correct the valuation and to go with something that is again you know like i said more palatable for the investors because these issues eventually like i said will impact the valuation at some uh, stage it is going to impact the entire process because it's not easy navigating through these issues especially you know when uh, it's not like there's a lot of support from the government authorities uh, there are not a lot of those third party platforms uh, the way we see in us uh, there are um, not very many crowdfunding platforms so in terms of navigating this space it's still a very old school space where the founders need to do the major share of the work at their end they need to have their house in order they need to prepare for what is coming as far as the transaction is concerned and then of course go to the professional investors approach them through either investment bankers or through you know other third party consultants and then take their proposal which you know it at least should be realistic in nature so that they are able to close the deal and get the funds at the earliest yeah what about other like global trends like esg is a trend across the world and then has that affected fundraising if yes in uh, what ways um and also uh, events like pandemic uh, that just happened so i think definitely i mean pandemic of course has given uh, both founders and investors some space to think about how they need to go about the fundraise how they need to go about the expansion whether they need to focus on cash burn or not um how much do they need to go on an overdrive to raise funds so on and so forth so i think there has been a lot of correction in the practices also the funding winter post the pandemic has sort of brought in a base correction in the way you know the startup founders were at least valuing their businesses pre pandemic and the way they are doing it post pandemic there is a certain difference so i think it has brought in some sense of a reality check as far as the startup founders are concerned and there has been this particular uh, valuation correction as well and if we look at esg yes esg has become a very important factor especially in the last 5 uh, 6 years more so 
in the Indian uh, startup ecosystem context, uh, especially with the recent instance, you know, few startups not being absolutely compliant. And, you know, some startups also getting into arrangements that was not on an arm's length basis. And a couple of startups also getting involved in alleged embezzlement. I think all of that has, again, brought in the focus back on ESG, not only as a theoretical concept, but also practically for the investors to be able to compel the founders to do an ESG check, to do an ESG due diligence before the transaction takes place and before uh, the startups can raise funds. And this is something that the startup founders have accepted as well. I think, um, especially on the manufacturing side, uh, the startup founders know that there is going to be a thorough ESG check. There is going to be a check of uh, labor compliances, environmental compliances, governance aspects, the social uh, side as well. And it is extremely important to be able to meet the minimum compliance criteria that is laid down under the Indian laws and also meet the criteria that the foreign investors may have from their uh, working and internal compliance standpoint. So I think this is something that has been made very clear through the investors' conduct and the promoters have sort of accepted it as well because we're seeing that in practice the ESG due diligences are being done and uh, if there are issues then the investors are asking for specific indemnities they're asking you know for issues to be resolved they're asking for um, uncapped indemnities to deal with these issues so on and so forth so this is an issue you know that is being looked into detail uh, by the investors okay indemnity when you say is basically uh, they investors having protection on you know when things go wrong that's simple way right to explain that so indemnity see indemnity is something you're right that that is something that gives protection to the investors but invest i mean from an investor standpoint and from a founder standpoint indemnity is also something which is very crucial in the negotiation domain because ultimately um any and all issues that may arise, whether they are big or small, and any sort of dispute that arises in future would need to go through the indemnity process. And uh, to put things in context, uh, you know, in terms of how investors would want the warranties, the promoter warranties to be categorized, they of course have their set of fundamental warranties, they have the tax warranties, they have the business warranties, they have the environmental warranties, and then they have um certain indemnities against those they have the liability caps against those they want you know especially on the fundamental liability front and on the tax liability front they want to be absolutely protected and that is why they ask for um you know uncapped uh, liabilities as well also on to the front of specific indemnities if during the due diligence process there are certain compliance issues that have been identified. And if there are certain ESG issues that have been identified, the investors these days are very clear that they want a specific indemnity, which is not subject to the general indemnity caps and restrictions, which is, you know, paid right from uh, the first dollar. And they're very clear that they want those specific indemnities and they want the promoters to give those specific indemnities. 
yeah. and that is how the negotiations go and yeah it, it it's something which is increasingly becoming more palatable for the founders as well because they are you know agreeing to give these kind of indemnities so generally in when you look at the terms of fundraising is it becoming more founder friendly or investor friendly so i think um i think both and let me tell you why i say that i think from the fundraising side it's become promoter friendly it's become easier for the promoters to raise funds there are a lot of op- options for uh, you know the founders to be able to raise their funds they are able to raise funds to equity instrument they are able to raise funds to debt instrument they are able to raise funds to banks and financial institutions of course so there are a lot of uh, avenues that are open also in terms of the types of instruments for founders they increasingly have more options in terms of the instruments that they want to issue so they can issue equity instruments they can issue preference shares they can issue debentures they can issue convertible notes there are a lot of options for them to be able to raise funds so in that context i feel that the founders of course have it much easier than their predecessors in terms of fundraise but if we look at the investor side if we look at the kind of rights that the investors have been asking for i feel that has definitely become investment friendly and of course uh, you know any issues of fraud embezzlement or any startup bust up issues of course don't help the founders cause and that is something that of course gives uh, more leverage to the investors in terms of asking for certain rights and those rights are not just restricted to you know the exit rights or preemptive rights or the normal anti dilutions or the indemnities that i spoke about those rights go to sort of even earmarking the promoter's securities keeping the promoter's securities locked in an escrow account also putting certain anti fraud clawback provisions to be able to claw back the founder's shareholding in case you know any issues of fraud embezzlement or misconduct were to crop up so i think in that sense the investors uh, are in a position where at least in the indian ecosystem they can ask for uh, all of these rights and also get them so i think in that sense they are of course better placed yeah so uh, can we uh, go deep on both right like you mentioned about that different instruments by which founders can raise funds what is the difference between note and uh, debentures you mentioned That that was one thing I wanted to ask, uh, and uh, also yeah. there there are these factoring financial transactions, right? Uh, I think a lot of SaaS companies there are these. This is an option for a lot of SaaS companies, and also maybe at tech companies that I can think of. So yeah, if you could explain the 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 different instruments in details, that would be really helpful. Sure. So I think in terms of the instruments, of course, on the capital side, we have the equity shares and the preference shares, yeah. and uh, you know, which is known as the common capital and the preferred capital. Yeah, preferred and the common stock, and, yeah. and the the founders usually have the common. Right. Yes. Yes. So this is one way of using the capital. Then, of course, we have the debt side. On the debt side, we have the debt instruments. Those are, uh, you know, one is of course the convertible note that I spoke about initially. That only certain categories of companies can issue, and then there are debentures. 
it matures our debt instruments so and uh, they are the instruments that can also be converted into equity so founders uh, in their companies have an option to raise uh, funds through mandatorily convertible debentures or through optionally convertible debentures which after a period of time and subject to certain conditions can get converted into equity and that is also something that they look at while uh, raising uh, funds and you're right you know a lot of edtech uh, startups a lot of saas startups are looking at a combination of uh, equity stock which is your uh, common stock and debentures uh, to be able to raise funds and i think this also comes from the background of where the startup is in terms of its growth journey and how much funding it needs of course from an equity and debt standpoint it's always that debate that the startup founders don't want a lot of debt to be appearing on their balance sheets and for all the right reasons but also they're always in that fix that they don't want to dilute their equity stake in the company so i think it's always that tussle that goes on between equity and debt and probably you know for them it's very important to come up with the right balance of equity and debt when they're looking at fundraise yeah but i didn't still understand the difference between note and debentures yeah so see i think with the notes it's let me put it this way it's very few companies that can issue it in terms of who can issue like i mentioned startup companies can issue it debentures is a far more you know it, it's an instrument which is commonly used by all the companies it can be issued by any company and this is far more commercially acceptable as well because it doesn't uh, have the restrictions of the convertible note but it is something that as a debt instrument can be issued by almost any company in india and and this is also something which is an acceptable form of fundraise from a foreign exchange law standpoint yeah uh, so how is factoring uh, different from other uh, debt instruments so when we talk about factoring factoring is basically a type of financing concept in which a business sells its account receivables to a third party to meet its short term liquidity needs i mean it's essentially a transaction between two parties where the factor would pay the amount due on the invoices minus its commission of fees now this is very different from a debt instrument because a debt instrument like i mentioned it's a loan instrument and usually it's not backed by any collateral and normally you know it has a term of greater than or 10 years and uh, this is something which is uh, a common way of fundraise for uh, a lot of companies especially in india yeah i think for saas companies this is i've seen a lot of startups that does this uh, yeah they can improve their uh, cash flow by getting uh, raising financing yeah. like this yeah so yes. in terms of terms that helps the investors right what are some of those terms that founders are happy to accept is more investor friendly okay so i think founder uh, lock in of securities is one which is extremely investor friendly so yeah. this means that the founder securities are going to be locked up where they are not able to transfer the securities for a certain time period and that is also required from an investor standpoint so that the founders can give that much time to the company that they've set up and so that they are absolutely involved 
in the day-to-day functioning of the company. So this is something that the founders readily accept. And the second it's usually thing, years, right? yes, it's typically four years. In fact, okay. uh, we've so, also seen this concept of uh, lock-in being extended to earmarking of securities now. So what we are seeing is that the founders' shares are being earmarked and kept in an escrow. And uh, this is to prevent a situation where, you know, the founders end up transferring their shares in breach of the transaction documents. And the investors in that situation are only left with a post facto remedy. Uh, because if the shares have been transferred, uh, the investors can't do much. So to prevent that sort of a scenario, they are also looking at escrow mechanisms where the founders can sort of deposit and earmark their securities. So this is something that we've seen happen very recently. And some of the investors are getting the founders to agree to this as well. The second concept, I think, is indemnities that I spoke about especially those related to the breach of fundamental warranties and tax warranties and the other category of indemnities are specific indemnities based on the specific issues that the investors discovered during their due diligence in ESG diligence processes. So that is also something which is absolutely important. And the third, I think, is uh, the preemptive and the anti-dilution rights. Uh, so, you know, anti-dilution, especially whenever there is a future down round in the company to protect uh, the price and the valuation at which the investors have invested, they ask for anti-dilution as well. And the founders are okay to give it. And um, I think the other set of rights, uh, which are extremely important, are the exit rights. Because it is extremely important for the investors to make their money and exit the company. And from a founder's uh, standpoint, it is important to be able to give various options, either in the form of buyback or IPO, if not that, then strategic sale or secondary transactions, but somehow arrange for the exit of the investors as in when they need to exit the company. Yeah. So um, recently in India, there's been a lot of uh, governance sort of issues, right? So yeah, is there a change in terms of fundraising adjusting to those instances as in like reacting to those instances i think so yes i mean there have been recent instances that have not been in good taste uh, there have been instances of um, startup founders being embroiled in disputes with the investors there have been allegations against the founders for fraud embezzlement and there have been certain evident financial and other compliance issues with some startups. So I think all of these issues have made the investors wary. Uh, there have been discussions between the founders and the investors on how to navigate it. But I think what this has done is this has again got the spotlight into how much and what can the investors eventually control. Of course, there have been discussions that the startup founders need to have, you know, their house in order. They need to comply with certain governance regulations. They need to, of course, comply with the financial regulations. But they need to agree to certain clauses in the documents to be able to protect the company's interest and the investor's interest and other stakeholders' interest as well. But despite all of this, there's a very real risk 
of commercially navigating on how much control can the investors have over the founders who are responsible for day-to-day -day functioning because it is eventually the founders on which the investors are betting on and i think um while you know one can of course speak about all of these issues and one can try to find a fine balance to be able to structure the documentations to deal with these issues or rather prevent these issues going forward but there's also a very real discussion that needs to happen on ground between uh, the investors and the founders on how to navigate this at a commercial and a practical level because ultimately it's the founders uh, who are running the ship yeah so what are founders doing especially on compliance yeah like improving the compliance side of things i think for one they are putting a lot of policies and processes in place they are setting up uh, separate compliance departments they are getting uh, you know separate uh, internal auditors they are getting internal risk controllers they are getting uh, independent directors they are forming independent committees to look into these issues and uh, they are also looking at uh, you know third party external advice uh, from um, you know former investors from our fund heads um former senior officials in the government former banking officials to ask them what more can they do to navigate this space in terms of compliance issues and in terms of investor tussles yeah so what are the specific compliance sort of i don't know whether to call it verticals so th there is tax there is with the data thing data compliance employment yeah so i yeah so i think one of course is uh, esg ESG compliance is important. The other one, as you rightly mentioned, is tax compliance. The third one is financial compliances. Yeah. You know, um, your business finance side, your uh, audit processes, so on and so forth. The fourth, or rather, the fifth category is going to be, um, you know, the compliances pertaining to your um, data miscellaneous issues. Uh, like data, it could be the uh, IT like side, properties. yeah, IT as well, IPR, all of these compliances on the miscellaneous side. So all of this is going to be categorized as one bucket, depending upon the nature of the business the company is in. And again, you know, it's important from a founder's standpoint as well to be able to categorize some of these compliances as absolutely high risk, medium risk, and low risk. i think it's important to know what are the kind of uh, non compliances uh, that can result in uh, potentially higher penalties or probably criminal prosecutions and then to focus on the um mid risk compliances that will result probably in some monetary penalties but maybe not prosecution but they can still result in a loss of reputation and then certain role low risk compliances which from a monetary standpoint or brand reputation standpoint are not going to cause a lot of damage so i think uh, it's important for every founder to sit with their advisors to do this exercise to be able to sort of uh, have this uh, tracker and analysis ready on what are the high risk mid risk and low risk compliances 
so that they can work towards it and accordingly allocate cost towards it because very realistically a lot of times it's about uh, the allocation of cost and resources which is an impediment in complying you know with various uh, rules and regulations though of course not an excuse but it's important to be able to allocate uh, the resources and the cost in a manner that at least the high risk and the mid risk uh, compliances uh, get done at the earliest yeah <laughs> to understand and to keep updated of all the <laughs> compliance in india it itself is like a, a, a <laughs> huge task right no absolutely in fact i recently had a founder telling me that you know on an average it looks like in the entire journey of a company there are around 4000 to 5000 laws applicable I and mean, how are we even supposed to practically navigate that yeah and on a lighter note yes they're like you know we should probably just leave our normal jobs and uh, leave the business and should just focus on <laughs> compliance with rules and regulations because it looks like that is something that we need to pick up as a priority so it's impossible with the number of uh, laws and rules and regulations that are there so yeah i mean that is something which is definitely uh, an issue in the indian context uh, but again i think one just needs to figure out a way to navigate it in the best possible manner yeah Uh, so and what about these employment labor sort of compliance in terms of like your team uh, your employees side of thing and also with your customers and uh, partners and suppliers etc uh, what about compliances uh, in both these two aspects and also enforcement of any contracts is is not really possible right in india or like it's more like law doesn't really help with yeah i mean uh, see very honestly i think uh, on the question pertaining to enforcement of contracts that is something where uh, there has been an improvement honestly on um, you know on recoveries to be done under uh, the contracts or to be able to enforce contractual rights we are seeing that the indian judicial system is improving they are reacting faster they are giving away remedies so yes it's uh, definitely become better in the last 10 years on to your other question on what are the uh, level of compliances that are required for uh, employees and you know for uh, customers vendors suppliers in the other bucket so let's come on to the employees and workers i think again navigating through the gamut of employment and labor laws in india it's quite complicated uh, especially if one is running a manufacturing setup you have the industrial disputes act there's a factories act there are standing orders there are payment of wages act minimum wages act payment of bonus act uh, esi epf so on and so forth gratuity there are just way too many laws to navigate but it is extremely important to do the compliances under each of these laws also in the you know on the white collar side uh, with the office employees uh, again there are laws pertaining to shops and establishments gratuity uh, minimum wages so on and so forth so it's extremely important for businesses to have you know their hr teams and their uh, labor law advisors absolutely on their toes so that uh, all of these laws and filings and um, you know can be complied with and multiple compliances can be done um so uh, i think from a government standpoint they are trying to streamline the labor law compliances uh, in fact there are four labor codes in the ofi 
and uh, one would see them uh, hopefully getting implemented in the next uh, two three years so that is something that the government is trying to do they're trying to replace all the labor laws and just consolidate everything in the form of four labor codes so that is something which is you know in the pipeline now as far as the laws uh, and the compliances pertaining to customers and uh, vendors and suppliers are concerned uh, again you know i feel uh, that is an area where it is more governed by contracts i mean unless there's a specific law um, i mean unless there's a specific law dealing with it for example if there's a data protection act that is applicable if uh, the company is storing the personal data of customers or third party vendors then of course that is a compliance under that law that the company would need to do similarly if the company is in fintech business and it is dealing with vendors which are also in that space then it would need to comply with the rbi regulations also you know if uh, the company is dealing with vendors which are small and medium sized enterprises then there are laws applicable to the smes and one would need to comply with those laws so i think with the customers and third party vendors it mostly depends on the kind of business activity that is being carried out and the kind of transactions that are being done also i think that companies uh, these days are quite cognizant of the fact that they need to have their contracts with their uh, employees customers vendors suppliers absolutely watertight so that you know there's no issue going forward and they are absolutely you know putting in uh, the time and effort in getting those contract updates right so whether that's on the employee side or whether that's on the customer side in the form of uh, customer agencies or whether that's uh, with the contracts that the companies are signing with their vendors and suppliers they are absolutely making sure that the contracts are detailed they have all the legal provisions they have all the commercial uh, points outlined the entire scope of work detailed so that there is as little confusion and interpretation issue going forward as possible yeah i mean in my experience at least i i don't think it's great to say this but then there is absolutely still no enforcement of any contracts right it, 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 even if even if there is any enforcement it's like physical force enforcement <laughs> rather than by law see in terms of enforcement i think it's definitely getting better i mean if you're talking about the indian context things are improving if we were to look at the kind of inspections for example that the labor inspectors are doing for the enforcement of the labor laws the inspections have increased uh, the kind of uh, notices that the labor departments are sending all of that is increased um, they're doing it on a more regular basis they're more in touch with the companies to figure out what all compliances have been done from the last time when they send the notice so on and so forth so i believe there is improvement also if we look at the tax side for example the tax department uh, you know their whole uh, method has changed in the last few uh, years Uh, the way they're sending out notices, the way they're keeping a tab on the kind of transactions that the companies are entering into, the kind of uh, cases and instances that they are reopening and reanalyzing. So I think all of that is changing. So yes, I think in terms of the implementation, things are changing. Of course, uh, there is a long way to go, but yeah, things are improving at the ground level. Yeah, and um. can we also talk about the liabilities uh, side of things um, so you mentioned investors even for investors no matter what what terms they put in there is still a, a limitation on 
the control that they can have. So what are investors doing in terms to limit their liability and also, of course, the founders? In terms of, of course, I mean, from the founder's side, uh, the founders um, try to negotiate through the liability caps uh, for the indemnities that they give to the investors at the transaction value. They also try to whatever extent they can uh, not have any investor interference either through veto rights or through information rights or through approval of business plans. So they're trying not to have investor interference in day-to-day affairs. That is something that they are trying. Um, from a founder standpoint, they're also trying uh, that, you know, in terms of the exit rights, they can extend the exit rights to as much time as, you know, they need to get the business up and running. So whether that's four years, five years, six years, they, of course, try to have as many mechanisms in place so that from their end, they don't breach, um, you know, the uh, right that they've given to the investors to exit the company. So, um, you know, these are uh, some of the rights that at least from a practical standpoint, the founders try to negotiate and navigate. From an investor standpoint, again, while they can't absolutely control the business operations, but we are seeing that the investors increasingly are retaining the right to appoint a director to the board or to appoint an observer to the board to keep a tab on what all has transpired in the board meetings, what is happening at the operational level in the company. They're also retaining the right to be able to appoint professional CEO, CEO of their choice in the company in case the promoters or, or, or the founders sort of end up defaulting. So that is something they're increasingly doing. And this is something that we are seeing that uh, the founders are also accepting. So, you know, the right to improve appoint a professional uh, like a a CEO or a CEO is an important right and of course it needs to be exercised sparingly but that is something that the investors are absolutely insisting on. Yeah so in cases of founder fraud uh, there's been a number of cases in the recent past in India. Um, What can investors do and has there been any changes in terms of like checks and balances put in place to make sure that there is not much of those cases, at least in the future. I mean, from an investor standpoint, to be able to have the checks and balances is very important for them to, you know, put in a mechanism of having a compliance committee or a compliance board and having a compliance officer in the transaction document. That's something very important from their standpoint. Uh, What they're also insisting on is not just an initial uh, compliance or an ESG due diligence, but to have all of these compliance and ESG and financial due diligences being done on a quarterly or a biannually basis so that the founders can present them with the updates and the status of where they stand as far as the compliances are concerned. From an investor standpoint, I think they're also insisting for post-fraud or post-embezzlement remedies in the form of, uh, you know, founder uh, clawback, I mean, where uh, the shares and the securities of the founders can be clawed back or transferred to the other investors. They're also insisting on clauses where uh, the founders would be compelled to leave the company, at least in the operational capacity, and the fact that they can be replaced by certain other professionals. 
so those are the kind of uh, clauses uh, and provisions that uh, the investors are insisting on apart from uh, the others that i discussed during the course of my conversation in the form of indemnities and so on and so forth so what about the embezzlement of uh, funds what what can investors do See, I think, I mean, in case of embezzlement, it's also very important to get the internal processes right. I mean, of course, once it has happened, then it's a question of uh, proving it and having the auditors do an audit, prove that there was an embezzlement, and then proceed with the criminal remedies, criminal prosecutions as well. And of course, proceed with the remedies to get the money back, or, you know, proceed with civil remedies, that is. But I feel that more than the post-factor remedies, it's important to put in uh, checks and balances and processes in place so that these instances can be avoided. And for that, is it, it is absolutely important to have, you know, internal uh, teams, internal control teams, internal audit teams within the companies to have compliance officers who sort of... Uh, you know, keep a tab of all of these issues on a day-to-day basis and they update the board and the investors if uh, anything goes wrong. I think that's the more uh, real way to keep a track of things and sort of prevent things from going out of control. And um, from the founder perspective, you know, you, you've sent me the notes on this thing and, and it, it talks about insurance that investors can consider. There is already limited liability for a private company, right? So what is the clear use case of insurance? What are the scenarios where insurance for directors uh, will help in terms of personal liability sort of risk? Yeah, so in terms of the personal uh, liability, so um, see what happens is, of course, in a limited liability company, we know that the liability of the shareholders is limited. But having said that, it is very important for directors and officers, especially those important, you know, appointed by the investors to have the directors and officers liability insurance so that tomorrow, if something goes wrong in the company, you know, either because of the founders or otherwise, then at least the investor representatives are the one who are protected through this insurance. Because while, you know, they would want to appoint their directors and officers and observers in the company to ensure that everything is going fine, they would not want to be in a position where they are held personally liable or when they're not in the driving seat. So that is where DNO insurances really help. And that is also a trend which has been there worldwide, but it is also picking up in India where um, investor representatives insist or DNO insurances. Yeah. Is there one sort of trend that is happening right now, which is like a positive signal in terms of like, you know, the right sort of checks and balances are being put in place, but it's also making it easier for the, the every party involved in, in terms of founders and investors uh, to run businesses in India. Is there something that is like a positive sign? I think, I mean, it's, it, 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 it was always happening, but I think it's definitely, you know, got more traction in the last few years. And that is, I think, the process of due diligence and having all the compliances in place. So that is something that the founders and the company are giving a lot of importance to. And that's a good trend. 
though you know that is something that of course entails uh, cost and resources like we discussed but it is something that is going to eventually help the founder navigate a lot of issues when they enter into transactions with the potential investors and keeping the compliance ground clean is something which is an added responsibility in addition to running the business but i think if the founders can get it right they would end up saving themselves from a lot of other worries in future yeah yeah this was great thank you so much for taking the time to do this thank you so much it was my pleasure and i hope for that you know our audiences would be able to get an inkling of the current trends in the startup sector and you know in case there are any questions that anyone would have i would be happy to answer that as well